0: you know, to be at a higher tier of this stuff, it takes a lot of balls. I mean, these guys that have God knows how much money into an engine and are willing to say, you know what, I'm going to put 80 pounds of boost in that. And I'm going to turn on two kits of nitrous. And I don't give a if it blows up. And by the way, I'm going to strap myself into this thing.
1: Welcome to the HPA Tuned In podcast. I'm Andre, your host, and in this episode, we're interviewing Cody Phillips from Cody Phillips Racing. Now, Cody is a very well known fixture in the drag racing scene, particularly with his 2JZ powered JZA80 Supra. This is one of the fastest IRS or independent rear suspension Supras in the world, running as quick as 681 at well over 200 mile an hour. Now, yes, I know there are Supras and 2JZs deep into the 5s at this point. So on face value that doesn't sound that impressive but this is an independent rear suspension vehicle, stock rear suspension which puts him at a significant disadvantage. It is also a essentially full weight car with full glass throughout and weighs somewhere in the region of 3000 plus pounds so it is no lightweight and make no mistake, he is at the cutting edge. Cody is also well known for his professional motorsport wiring harnesses which is part of his Cody Phillips racing business. We've interviewed him before on our YouTube channel more about the wiring. Today we dive really deep into his Supra and learn some of the inside secrets that you just won't hear about. I'm talking here about head gasket sealing, I'm talking about turbo boost control strategies, launch control strategies, billet blocks versus cast blocks. The journey that he is still going down with the development of a brand new billet cylinder head for the 2JZ, CO2 boost. Control the list goes on. So, for anyone with an interest in drag racing, this interview is. Gold. Before we get into that interview, though, for those who maybe haven't heard of High Performance Academy before or who are new to this podcast, HPA is an online training school. We specialize in teaching people how to tune EFI, how to build performance engines, construct wiring harnesses. We cover race driver education, race car setup and optimization, as well as data analysis techniques. Now, we cover a wide range of topics today in our chat with Cody, but really, We are talking predominantly around tuning aspects so relevant to our topic today of course are our tuning courses. This would start with our EFI Tuning Fundamentals course and also for those who want to learn the practical elements of that, our practical standalone tuning course is a great addition and I know particularly for those who are fresh to EFI tuning, when it comes to installing and tuning your first ECU, particularly if you have no start file or base map, it can be really daunting. What do you do first and what order should you progress in? What we've done within our practical standalone tuning course is broken the entire tuning process down into the HPA 10 step process. By doing this, each of those individual steps is relatively quick and easy to complete. In no time, you've got to the end, you've got a completely tuned engine delivering great power, great torque and most importantly, great reliability. Important to mention that these courses are applicable Irrespective of what brand of ECU you're personally interested in tuning, and it also doesn't matter what engine you want to tune. These courses will be perfect for you. Now you can use the coupon code Podcast75. That's going to get you $75 off the purchase of your very first HPA course. We'll put a link in the description to those courses. All right, with that introduction out of the way, let's get into our chat now. All right, welcome to the podcast, Cody, thanks for joining us today. Uh, you're really well known for your amazing immaculate Supra drag car and I'm interested to start with just to get in a little insight into what got you personally interested in drag racing as a form of motorsport.
0: Well I think if I, if people ask me this question, I, I tell them what got me into cars is RC cars. So as a youngster I sort of fell in love with just driving RC cars around the neighborhood. And, uh, you know, back then you had to put them all together. I just, I just got a new one for my son for Christmas and the thing comes fully assembled now. So I was missing half the fun. Yeah. So there's the, it was that whole experience of learning what a differential does and is from the inside out, not, you know, watching a video or something. And you're just looking at some instruction manual in the mid nineties. So kind of all stems from there and really just had fun when I was a uh, young teen, uh, starting to race at local tracks and just kind of always had that bug. I guess you could say I kind of grew up in the sand dunes and riding three wheelers and dirt bikes. And so racing was always fun to do. And we always drag raced out there. So started doing RC cars. And then, you know, once I was old enough to drive, just kind of naturally started getting into the to the car scene a little bit, and that's kind of when the whole Fast and the Furious thing was kind of building up. And late '90s import stuff was coming out, VTEC and Honda swaps and stuff like that. So kind of stemmed from there. And of course, late '90s, mid '90s, just the Supra was was kind of the the Holy Grail. The NSX, the Supra, the RX-7, and you know we didn't have any Skylines over here, so we kind of loved the Supra and all that, and. Early on, uh, out of high school, I ended up buying a brand new Honda Prelude and uh, just because I liked the car, had a pretty good job and could buy a new car, and so started modifying that and got in with some local guys and uh, went for a ride in a, in a good friend's Integra that uh happened to have a supercharger on it, and I was just hooked <laughs> after that. So every time I I see this guy, he's kind of in and out of the the racing scene through the years, but I was telling him, you know, it's your fault. I'm even into this. (laughs) So, you know, we kind of got into the street racing scene and then we had a local track here so we could go down and, and run at the track and of course not get chased by the cops and all that stuff. So we started going to the track and learning, you know, what a 60 foot was, how to stage a car do a burnout, all that stuff. And uh the the prelude was a, a 2 year project that i kind of messed around with i think it made 300 wheel i put a supercharger on it and did some other stuff and decided i wanted to get a little deeper into the drag racing so i bought a a shell of an integra and was going to build a drag integra and that that was kind of the beginning of the standalone engine management time you know 2001ish i guess and guys were going maybe like 12 os here it was really nothing spectacular but you know most of the muscle car
1: guys weren't going much faster then so suffice to say things came along pretty quickly yeah, over that period yeah. of time
0: so it, it, it kind of morphed from that and you know i had this big plan to build a Dragon Tegra, but in the back of my mind I, I just really wanted a supra uh one of my best friends growing up his dad had a supra and if we clean the garage and mowed the grass and you know, did everything right. He'd let us take it out on the weekends. And so, we'd just get to it wasn't even turbo, it was NA. So, I'd just get to ride in that thing. And and so, you know, going full circle, I just, I, I really just wanted a Supra in the beginning and in the end. And so, I kind of scrapped that Integra project and uh, just said, I got to find a Supra. And I found one clear across the country and flew out there and drove it home. And I bought it from the guy and I shook his hand and he says, what are you going to do with this thing? And I said, Honestly, I'm probably going to make it one of the fastest ones in the world, and he just died laughing. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so yeah, hopes and dreams. Yeah, not that I ever made mine one of the fastest, but it's it's pretty
1: well known. And you know, it was kind of a a, a long plan. So that was the original Supra that you still to this day are drag racing.
0: Yeah, I, I've only owned. I tell everybody I've only owned one Supra, oh. and I bought that car in 2002, and I still
1: got it. All right, let's talk about the skill sets that you've you've sort of developed because you're obviously well known for your wiring and your your tuning, both of which are are tricky to to learn. So how how did that come about? Was that through necessity just wanting to tinker and modify what was your prelude and obviously later on the Supra or yeah, give give us some insight into that.
0: Yeah, so I guess, you know, during the prelude days, it was uh, VTech AFC. It's really what you could get. <laughs> and, Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh Vortec FMU or whatever, you know, four to one fuel pressure regulator, try and get the injectors to stretch. So uh it really kind of started with that. So as we got into the Supra, the the first sort of popular standalone that was out was the AM. It looked so cool to just plug in and skip the stock ECU and get into the software. And so that that really sparked my interest. And I was kind of done just up-down arrows and you know dealing with vpc these different things i was just sick of the piggyback stuff on the other platforms so i sort of just dove right in and i had no idea what i was doing which is probably how 90 percent of the people start any of this stuff whether it's tuning or wiring or even mechanical stuff it's the same process I, i didn't know much but i was eager and I would just study the software and try and learn things. And, and where I live, there's not a huge motorsport presence. So it's, it's a little better now. But back then, there wasn't anybody that could do that sort of tuning. There
1: was no remote tuning back then. The industry is very different now, for sure, than, than what it was back at that time, which you were basically learning in, in the same sort of time frame when, when I came up and started tuning as well. So I, I feel your pain. I know exactly what you went through.
0: Yeah. And looking back on that, I mean, you didn't really realize it at the time, but you're kind of pioneering all this stuff in this industry. Uh,
1: 100%. You know,
0: guys like you were doing what I was doing It'd clear across the world. And, you know, now we know each other just through the, the trade and, and the sport. But I sort of just got into it by doing it. And that that's exactly how I got into racing and, and mechanical stuff and, and wiring as well. It just kind of became a necessity if I wanted to use this product and, and – uh, get the most out of it, then I kind of had to figure it out. And I had some people that kind of started me up, you know, kind of teaching me the ropes of how tuning worked and that sort of thing. But we'd already, you know, when I first bought that ECU, nobody in the state had a a wideband Lambda (laughs) sensor. (laughs) I mean, it just,
1: we were like reading plugs when we were racing. It's a scary way of, of tuning, but I mean, there's a lot of people that have been doing it for a lot longer than we have with nothing more than reading plugs so you know you could argue it is via- still a viable technology. What I would say is because this argument does come up quite regularly or maybe not argument, question comes up about reading spark plugs and I'll say yes 100% you can read plugs and when I'm tuning something high power on the dyno I quite often will do a plug card and, and have a look at the plugs because yes of course there's there's a lot of information you can tell. What, what I normally see though is people pulling out plugs that have been in the engine for the last 40,000 and miles, you know, it's been idling for God knows how long and the plugs come out black with soot. You know, you're not learning anything from those plugs, there is a technique used if you want to do a plug read. The other aspect which I think is equally important to understand is when you're dealing with a carburetor and tuning by looking at plugs or a you know, constant flow mechanical injection system you don't have the granular ability to change the fueling at every site like you do with modern EFI. So generally if you're kind of in a ballpark, and I am simplifying this, if you're kind of in a ballpark and the plugs read okay, you're probably good to go. But I mean as you and I both know, you could have a perfect air fuel ratio at 7500 RPM and 40 pound of boost and you could be lean or rich at you know 500 RPM beyond that and you're know, that's the difficulty with, with plug rating. So I, I digress a little bit, a little bit off track, but I just wanted to to sort of jam that in there.
0: Yeah, and I think guys that kind of came up, so to speak, during the time that I did, most of us kind of learned backwards. So the, the wideband became just something that you had to invest into. I think I paid $900 for my first one um, and it made things so much easier. And then I could apply that to the data log and look at the data backwards, you know, instead of like reading the plug backwards, I could look at the data sort of backwards and see what happened and then look at the plug for reference and say, well, how did this change? What, what was the difference, you know, but kids nowadays, every car you buy, it's, it's got a AEM strapped to the <laughs> A pillar or something, you know, some sort of wideband that just makes things very simple. So
1: I think when I first got into tuning, the the wide bands that were available, I think there was about two brands. I forget the, the name. One of them might have been Horiba or something of that nature. And I, I, I had the FGL. The FGL was oh, yeah. a big one. Yeah, but, but, but I mean, I, I, again, off the top of my head, you, you were talking back then, sort of two, three thousand US dollars for a wideband. And I mean, you know, we're sport for choice now, a couple of hundred bucks, and you're going to get a, a good quality LSU 4.9 controller and sensor, and you're good to go. It's just people who yeah. are just getting into this, they do not realize how lucky they are with the technology <laughs> that is is available at, at a reasonable price these days. I, I just want to. Also circle back, you, you said with that prelude you were, you were talking like uh, VAFC, I think that was the the name of it. VTEC AFC. Yeah. VTEC AFC. So it gives you the ability to, to, to move the VTEC changeover point which obviously every Honda fanboy uh, thinks is the, the key to unlocking at least another 100 oh, kilowatts. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it, it also let you vary the, basically cheating the the load signal to the ECU at various RPM breakpoints. And it sounds crude, and it is, but, but the reality is for a lightly modified, naturally aspirated Honda, I actually still did a stand up job for probably a, a tenth or a quarter of the price of a full standalone. So, you know, there, it's important to say there is a, a place for different products. And, you know, a full standalone is not always going to be a viable or, or sensible solution. Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah, I think so. Um, I I never really got into much of the reflashing stock ECU stuff, just because you know we went VTEC AFC to full standalone. <laughs> so it uh, it no in betweens. And uh, you know, I I kind of joke like with my friends and stuff. I say, well, you know, nothing in moderation, and that's just kind of how I've always been. I just kind of go off the deep end when I start something and. You know, whether it be surfing or you know doing racing or anything, it's it's really not a very uh, small endeavor to begin with. So I just kind of take that big chunk, bite it off, and just start figuring it out. And uh, you know, that's that's how it went for me in racing. I just had to figure this standalone thing out and post on the forums and read stuff constantly. And as I look back now, anything that I want to learn now. And 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 I just I constantly find myself learning. The older I get, which which makes life much more enjoyable. That, and you know, you hear those people say, the more you know, the the less you actually really know. And anything I want to learn, I I can look it up on YouTube if I want to learn how a CNC works or something. I mean, there is so much information out there. And, and with what you guys have with HP Academy, it, if I had that in you know ninety eight ninety nine two thousand i mean my my road would have been much more streamlined
1: We built what I wanted back when I was learning, yeah. so hundred percent couldn 't agree more on that note as well I think that there's a there 's a level of People I see getting into the the tuning, or, or for that matter, the wiring or the engine building industry at a hobbyist enthusiast level these days, and, and there's a sort of certain element of you know you 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 tune one car or or do whatever it is, and, and you know a lot of people kind of it goes smoothly, so they think they're an expert, and I think there's a, a level of the uh, the Dunn and Kruger effect in there that initially you, you sort of think that you've you've mastered it and become an expert and as you've just mentioned there, the longer you're in the field, the more you realise you've still got to learn whereas those who are just early in it, they, they literally don't even know what they don't know. So I think it's really important uh, in in any endeavour to have an open mind and, and realise that no matter how smart you are, no matter how, how well you've done, that there is literally just always more that you can learn. For me, that's why I'm still passionate about this industry, though, because you know there is there's always something new out there. The technology is shifting, and and that means that I, I never know everything. It, it's great.
0: Yeah, and a lot of times people ask me, "Well, why do you drag race? You're in the car for six seconds, and that's not a lot of time. And you spend all this money and weeks and months preparing." And I tell everybody, I I drag race because it's fucking hard. I, <laughs> It is. Everybody everybody thinks it looks so easy. And, you know, sometimes you make a pass and the thing is on rails and it just goes down through there and everything was great. But getting that tire on the edge and getting it to work, it's never all the power right now from the hit all the way down. You know, getting all of those things to work and using your subsystems and your power management, that is the journey in it as much as it is the adrenaline of the pass and and really, the adrenaline of the pass is, is not always as cool for me as it is the competition. I mean, I just can love racing people. I love lining up against people. And the adrenaline of that part, the competition, is what I love. It's not that I just am like an adrenaline junkie and I gotta go two hundred miles an hour every time I get in a car. It's just I, I love being up against the other guy in the other lane. You got your setup, you don't know what he has, you're going for it, he's going for it, everything's on the line and it's up to you to deliver. And in drag racing, there's it's always a pretty clear cut winner. You know, we don't have judges like Formula Drift or anything, so it's this guy got there first, this guy left, you know, there's lights. And so I just, I love that part of it. And it's it's not just this crazy adrenaline that you get from it. So.
1: Yeah, d- definitely. And there's, there's so many elements to it and it is such a deceptively complex sport. But I, I know... A lot of people will look at drag racing and go, well I mean you're going in a straight line for 6 seconds, 7 seconds, 8 seconds, whatever it might be, Well, how hard is that, you don't even turn the steering wheel, just push the accelerator and go, how boring. And the reality of course is if you're looking at a car that's doing 13, 14, 15 second passes, well pretty much yeah, it is that within reason but you know, as you go faster and faster and you're right on the the limit of traction and the tracks are uh, evolving during a, a meeting and you know maybe a car's oiled down somewhere ahead of you th- there is a lot more to it uh, for me as well primarily as a, an engine builder and an engine tuner what i loved about drag racing is ultimately that's the the proving ground for your craft You you, you can see cheated dyno sheets anywhere on the internet and they don't mean shit really. But when the the lights, when that tree comes down and and you go, your ET and your mile an hour to those who know what they're looking at, those will really tell you everything you need to know about exactly how much power that engine really is producing. And then as you say, you get into all of these little intricacies like the power management, the strategies you're using to, to get that car down the strip. And the, there's just levels to this stuff that that I love. I mean, it's a very different sport to, or very different discipline to road racing, and. In the old story, as you pay more and more money to spend less and less time, in the the drivers seat of right. drag racing, which on face value makes <laughs> no sense, but yeah, I, I do, it's been a while since I've I've uh, gone down the strip, but I do still remember my old Evo pulling fourth gear, where you sort of had a, a second or so to relax before you hit the shoot, and you know You're that just feeling on like a good pass on. is like, yeah, 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 this is this is something very few people
0: will experience. And that's the thing is everybody thinks, well, you're going straight. It's easy. You let off a button. But you only, like I said, you only do that when the car is just dialed. But yeah. you, you get your personal best and you know what the car is going to do. But the other part that not a lot of people talk about is, you know, to be at a higher tier of this stuff, it takes a lot of balls. I mean, these guys that have God knows how much money into an engine and are willing to say, you know what, I'm going to put 80 pounds of boost in that. And I'm going to turn on two kits of nitrous and I don't give a fuck if it blows up. And by the way, I'm going to strap myself into this thing. <laughs> and <laughs> keep your eyes closed and hope. Yeah. And, you know, people don't understand like it's, it's a rush and it's all those things, but it takes a lot of guts to get in those cars and drive them hard and put the tune up in it. Yeah. And just know you're going to send that thing and, you know, blow it up, light it on fire. I mean, whatever. And so there's guys that are willing to do that and get in the cars. And, you know, I, I, for one, I build my own car, I tune it, I drive it. There's not a lot of guys that do that. A lot of guys have a tuner or they mm. have a car and they hire a driver and a tuner.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. There's as as another couple of elements there that you've just mentioned that sort of, I think, are worth diving into, which, again, are just so easy to over overlook so again sort of coming back to what I mentioned there with the drag strip essentially being the, the ultimate dyno, the ultimate proving ground, the, the other thing that I liked when I was drag racing, and I mean you're you're at the top of your game with what you're doing on the 2JZ super platform, you've got the ability then to see how good you are on a world stage. A drag strip is 400 metres long in New Zealand, it's 400 metres long in Australia, the US, everywhere in the world. So Literally, we're in this in this situation where you know people people are trading PB's world records, and, and straight away you see how good you really are. So I really love that about the four G sixty three platform. Yeah. I-, I bowed out when I was at the top, so uh, that's moved a long way. But um, yeah, I'll take that as a win, Michael Jordan style. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you stepped out of it at the right time. Yeah, exactly. Your, your wallet appreciates you. And and the other thing I'll just mention as well, you talked about you know. <laughs> these people being prepared to blow up engines and, and we quite often get asked with people getting into tuning, like oh, how many engines do you have to blow up before you learn how to tune? And my answer is always the same. If you understand the principles, you're doing your job properly, you should not be blowing up any engines. I firmly believe that you don't need to blow up engines to, to learn. However, there's levels to this as well. I mean we're talking a street car with 100 horsepower more than stock. There is absolutely no reason in the world that a tuner should be breaking that engine. However, right. you, you start taking a 2JZ and, and you want to punch out 2000 plus horsepower or you're, you're trying for world records, you are in uncharted territory and you are pushing the components so hard that no one knows what they're capable of. And unfortunately at that level, yes things will break, you have to find out where those weak points are so you can address them, fix them and come back stronger and unfortunately that can be an incredibly expensive learning curve. So that, that's kind of something that we'll, we have to accept if we want to compete on that stage, would you agree with that? Sure, but I, I think that uh, if you're involved
0: either as an owner or a driver or you're lucky enough that somebody's hired you to be a tuner in that scenario, you're just going to do nothing but learn from the situation because, you know, last year we, in 21, we were able to keep up in our, our PB in a couple of the cars that that I work with and in my personal car. And you sort of get to that uncharted territory where you, you barely Nick your, your personal best and you go, okay, what are we going to do now? You know, and it kind of comes back to having the guts to say, well, we're going to try 10 more pounds of boost if the turbo will make it. And, you know, we're going to try and 60 foot the car harder. We're going to use more nitrous and we're going to see what that does. And when that thing hooks and works and goes, I mean, you can't back out of it. You're along for the ride and you pull back and you look at that data. Like, like I, I tell everybody, my car is kind of a science project. I mean, I got so many sensors and anti-wheelie and you know, GPS stuff has been in and out of there. And so turbo speed versus temps, and you start diving into all these different data points. And and really, it's just, it's really cool for me, because I get to just learn that, you know, Hmm. You, you see other guys that get hired on various projects, like, like Shane T and stuff. And, and he's been further down that road, because he's been fortunate to enough to be hired by these people. And, and do these wazoo projects, you know, whether it's on the salt or or drag racing. And so, he, you know, you get exposed to, to different projects and things and you see different data and you try different things and you just learn stuff all the time. So,
1: I would say that there's a benefit in my mind as well of doing this on your own stuff versus doing it on a customer's car as well. I, I personally think, you know, that yeah. I think there's a... A sort of a duty of care when you're dealing with with a customer's car, within reason. I mean obviously if they're shooting for world records, well everything I just mentioned sort of goes without saying it is what it is, you're on the limits. But I mean I personally was always quite happy to push my own equipment a little bit harder than what I'd do for for a customer uh, because at the end of the day I, I didn't want unhappy customers.
0: But you start to just be able to have the answers in the future. So, sort of speak, if if somebody comes to you and they say, well, you know, how how much can you turn a 2JZ up before the head gasket's a problem? you can say, well, I don't know, stock head gasket, maybe 50 pounds, maybe 45 pounds, depends on the turbo. Are you using nitrous? Are you not using nitrous? But also that starts to carry over into other platforms, you know? So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, you know, the the stuff that I do tuning wise for the side-by-sides and that I've been able to pass some of this knowledge, just cross it over into that platform because we start to push those things harder and harder. And then, you know, as far as a head gasket solution or a sleeve solution, you know, I've, I've already been exposed to it on the tuning side of things and you get nitty gritty and granular with the with the data and and the engine building and it just starts going down all these other paths and things and, and sensors and gathering data to be able to make decisions. And so it, it helps your clients down the road. So you're constantly learning and just the applying of that to other projects is, is super critical. There's a lot of tuners and stuff out there that don't drive, they don't have their own cars. And so they're always testing it on other people's stuff. And like you said, if you're going for world records, that's all off the table. But if they're learning on somebody else's equipment, then you know, that can have its own set of circumstances. So
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let's dive a little bit deeper into the Supra since since we're a fair way down the rabbit hole already. So last time we caught up was at Texas 2K back in twenty nineteen from my memory. Yeah, team, I, I think, yeah, and and I think at the time you were running a, a cast iron block 2JZ because we, we discussed that at, at some length. And I understand you've now moved to both a billet block and a billet head. Uh, this is always a bit of a controversial subject because I know there's a lot pe- lot of people out there in the belief, rightly or wrongly, that you, you you replace the cast iron block with a billet aftermarket block and it's no longer a 2JZ. I'm not really interested in in sort of arguing for or against that, but you know, at a point where you want to make more power and, and the factory component tree starts becoming a limit, uh, you've got to start looking at options. Is is that where you were where you, you sort of at or about the limit of the of the cast block when you decide to make the change?
0: Yeah, for sure. I think we had that conversation during our interview there at, at 2K and, you know, I pretty much said bill of blocks our next move. And shortly after we we made that move because as you start to look at data, you start to see coolant pressure rise
1: and that can just be catastrophic in a drag car. And when you say coolant pressure rise, generally you're monitoring that coolant pressure and, and that's really a direct indication if that pressure climbs that you've breached or failed the head gasket, correct? You're getting combustion pressure into the water correct.
0: jacket. Correct, and, and, and then if you breach or fail the radiator in the car then you're failing the traction of the car and potentially crashing it at a high rate of speed. And so the the safety concern alone is is a good move on a billet block, just from that perspective. Uh, certainly, there are guys that have gone faster on a cast block than I did. Um, I had seen it done. I knew it could be done. Different head gasket solutions, but nothing that was really uh, long-term great choices and so you just get to that point where you got to make that investment and make a move to a billet block and head gasket ceiling starts to go away.
1: Let's just talk about that element because that's sort of always the fuse, that in my mind that limits how much power we can produce out of these high boost, small displacement import engines. You know, at some point the cylinder pressure becomes so high that just keeping it within the cylinder becomes a, a, a real problem. So it sounds like the rest of the block integrity, the bottom end, etc., wasn't really a problem, and and head gasket integrity was what drove finally that that choice to go billet. For sure, I mean, okay. as as we progressed through the years, we used to run no, no fill
0: in the coolant system as far as cement or hardening. Uh, we used to run a stock style head ga- or head stud, um, and you know my engine program sort of started earlier off with the half inch head stud. Most people don't run that now because the materials are better uh, to run a stock head, head stud sizing. Uh, then, you know, we had problems with the, with the stock main caps, so we created billet main caps. And then, you know, steel rods going to aluminum rods and clearancing the block and everything for that. So uh, it, it just kind of progresses up to where you can start to make more power and these other components can take it and then really the issue is just keeping that head gasket sealed and keeping the water pressure down.
1: So can you give us an indication of what sort of uh, power level slash boost pressure you were at kind of at the the point where you, you moved from cast? So at Texas 2K, I, I'd move my personal
0: best from, gosh, I don't know, maybe a high seven or mid seven at that time. And I think I went 727 or 721 a few times at Texas 2K. And between rounds, we had a rainstorm and I looked at the data and the, the coolant pressure was starting to go to about 60 PSI or so, which to give you a, a data comparison now, my coolant pressure in my current engine is about nine PSI. So you'd see the boost come up to 60, 62 pounds of boost or so, and the coolant pressure would just rise right up and then it'd be the end of the pass and you could shut it down. And luckily didn't have any major problems. Um, but, you know, I've I've lifted a head on the dyno one time. I've seen the coolant pressure go to 80, 80 pounds and it stretches the radiator. Um, obviously, it would have blown the radiator hoses off, but we all run AN fittings and hoses, so everything stays on there pretty well. But, you know, I think that's kind of the, the range, like low 60s, mid 60s is kind of where I started to see a problem. And I didn't run any sort of fire rings or hoops or anything on that engine. It was a OEM gasket with a half-inch head stud. Like I said, it was... Kind of an older combination
1: um as you mentioned there's obviously different solutions that you could have gone down that that might have got you a little bit further so you're definitely not saying that that's the limit of the cast block just to be really clear for sure I mean e canoe went fives on the cast block,
0: yeah you know? so it's uh you can make it work and do things uh. But for me, I had been watching that data historically and I knew what, what was there. And, and as I turned the boost up, I'd check these different channels and, and I'd see it. and I knew the recipe that was forming. And, and plus, hell, I just wanted to run more boost and everything else. So <laughs> I just said, let's, let's make the move and, and go for it and get a different head gasket solution at the same, same time. So, yeah,
1: why not? Okay, so moving to that billet block and I understand you've, you've actually gone to a billet cylinder head as well. Was, was that move made at the same time or were these two separate upgrades? Two separate moves. So we went uh, 687 and
0: 681 at Hail Mary Derby 2021. And we were sort of going for it after that 81 pass because the record was an
1: 80 for Jack Kudo for the super IRS world. Yeah, sorry, we should have probably also mentioned, because people are probably listening, thinking, well, Supras have gone much faster than this, but this is the IRS Independent Rear Suspension, so which puts you at a significant disadvantage compared to to a, going to a proper four-link. Sure. That and the
0: weight that we run the cars at, they've still got full glass and steel doors and... You know, not a bunch of weight reduction and things. So my car is thirty two hundred and fifty pounds, and I race it at. That's the class it fits in for World Cup finals, and so I kind of leave it in that trim throughout the year, and that's about where Jack's car was too. Um, he was fortunate enough to go six eighty at Texas two K twenty twenty before the event got shut down, and he he sort of reset the the world record at that time for the Supras IRS um, and. I had gone 687 um, at the Hail Mary Derby in May of 21 and thought, well, I saw the Lambda was way off because I, I started to use uh, a little bit more of the, the one of the nitrous kits. And so, I, I knew I had to lean that out a little bit and I knew there was a little bit more there. And so, I ran it again and it went 681 and I think it went 441 in the eighth or 442. And we had one more shot to run it and I, said, well, I I don't really give a shit at this point. I want I want the record. I know what it needs. And I threw some more at it. And it went uh, 109, 60 foot, 289 in the 330, and 436 in the 8. And at 402 in the run, the turbo exploded. Ouch. So I didn't get to make the rest of the run. But that would have been a hell of a pass. I don't know. You know, people I talked to. Oh that would have been in the 60s, you know, it was a high 60 and some people say oh, I would have been a 58, you know, and who knows what the hell it would have ran, you know, but that's that's kind of what we're still chasing is is getting back to that point point. and the previous few races we had gone to both my car and Tony Phillips's car, you've had him on Tony's car mentioned on on some of your stuff and and he's an IRS guy and we kind of rotate or we kind of race out of the same camp share data and the, the cars are damn near identical. Tony and I, as well as several other 2J racers, we were just f***ing over the cast stock OEM cylinder head. So we'd found the limits of the block and we just kept finding, you know, six passes, eight passes. We were damaging the cylinder head. We were cracking an exhaust port because we were, we were having them ported so heavily to make the power that they were weak or, We were bending valves because we were putting bigger valves in them or, you know, the cooling wasn't there or whatever the situation was. So, we had both really wanted to make the move away from the cast cylinder head. The the other problem that we had, is there was a a point in time we just couldn't get a cylinder head. Mm. Just Toyota had 400 on back order in the U.S., so, you couldn't get one. And when you got one, you would have to put, I don't know, $8,000 into modifications. It had to be welded, uh, the water jackets to run a dry deck. We'd have to cut the o ring grooves for the head gasket style we'd run. Uh, we'd have to clearance it for high lift cams. We'd have to clearance it for the head studs. And then, of course, all the porting, which has to be shipped out to a couple of different places. Then we'd change all the valve seats. Then we'd do the valve work. And you know it's just a painstaking process and we'd run those things 6 or 8 times or 10 times or sometimes 15 and break the whole damn thing or or you know it'd be so warped and tacoed out we'd lift the center of it and not the the ends and just turn the thing into basically a piece of shit and start over again so <clears throat> both Tony and I were pretty pretty over that and we wanted to make a move to to get into the billet head thing and so we were kind of the first couple guys to get one. We were, we knew what we were kind of the path we were going down. I think when we were talking earlier, you said anybody who's tried this billet stuff, you know, it's it's not all roses in the beginning.
1: Yeah, and I think everyone, you know, on the outside of this, you know, sees, oh, well, billet—that's the answer. And I mean, ultimately, yes, it, it may be the answer, but just like anything, you know, at this level. There's a learning curve that comes along with this. It doesn't come easily necessarily and, and I, I've spoken to several competitors across different forms of motorsport that have gone to billet engine components and yeah, they've, they've basically spent a, a huge amount of time and, and not an insignificant amount of money getting up to speed with what, what those blocks or parts need in order to, to work and be reliable.
0: Yeah and the cool thing about billet is you can make it anything you want it to be size wise, port wise, thickness wise, strength wise. I mean for the most part, if if you can dream it, you can make
1: it. Actually on that note, as you say, you've got that ultimate flexibility. And I I haven't dealt too much with the 2J Z at the sort of level you're talking. Um and without trying to get 2JZ fanboys offside with me, from what I understand, yo, know, given some other better flowing cylinder heads the 2JZ port shape and sizes may be actually not that favorable for what you're trying to do with it so first of all is that correct and secondly if so are you able to completely fix that with the bullet head yeah
0: so I think 2JZ guys were were blessed with just a brilliant block. And the cylinder head is just kind of shit, <laughs> especially coming <laughs> coming from the Honda world. Uh, you, know, you know, VTEC, and you look at like K series Honda head. I mean, it's pretty hard to go past a
1: like, K20 head.
0: Yeah, it's just beautiful. So if we could, if we could put that on the top of the 2J, we'd we'd have Hold a hell on. of an engine. But uh, yeah, the the ports are not great. Um, everything about it just is not great from the factory. So. Kind of starting from ground zero, we we could have said, let's make a head the right way. And we're talking K series. Let's make it into a K series and let's reshape the ports and let's change where the the mounting holes are for the intake manifold so that all the ports are straight. Let's change the valve angle. Let's do this and that. And really, what the conversation turned to is what we have in stock head works well enough. It's just not strong Hmm. for what we're starting to do to it because. A lot of people say, "Well, well, Cody, there's there's a million guys with two J's that have gone way faster than you." And yeah, I believe that. And obviously, it's out there. But as I talk to some of the other two J guys, you know, and I talk to them through their data and what they're doing, they really like for Titan, for example, that they really don't run that car that hard. That uh, you know, they run an eighty-eight millimeter turbo because of their class. They don't use nitrous, and generally, they run it. At, I don't know seventy pounds of boost or so, and. You know, when we were going 680, I had 80 pounds in the car and two kits of nitrous, you know, just because the car is heavy, it's IRS, it just doesn't work well enough until you start beating the shit out of it. So, you got to fix your deficits with power, basically. Yeah. So, we're running the car harder than people think to get that ET. And so, that is just much harder on the engine components. And and so, I feel like we kind of get down this road quicker than people realize because like I said, I'm not really that, that lacks a daisy about running the car hard. If it's time and the track is there, let's do it. And I love racing that guy next to me, like I said. So, but we need the longevity to get through the rounds and we need the longevity, you know, race to race. And so that, that's kind of why we went billet and we said, we just need something that is going to
1: be similar to the OEM head to start with, but in billet. And so that's where we started. I mean I guess the other element that that is worth considering there when you're weighing up your options, I mean yes obviously you could do anything you want starting with a clean sheet of paper but that 2JZ aftermarket is is really well developed. You've got quality aftermarket inlet manifolds from a range of manufacturers that are designed to bolt onto an OE 2JZ head. So you'd have to start from scratch on that front. Likewise, the exhaust manifold. Likewise, the valve train, the cams, it goes on and on and on. So yes- Valve covers, cam yeah, seals. I mean, it just comes down to so many things. That- and, and yes, you could- Address every single one of those things that we've just mentioned, but at, at what expense in terms of both time and money? So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a sensible solution if if you've got something that that's that's workable and you just want it stronger. Well, ha- have at it. Yeah, let let's just redevelop basically the the OE geometry. Now, how well did that work out when when you you hit the dyno? Well, uh, the dyno is where we we
0: began to learn. I guess you could say. Once I got the product in hand, I, I was really impressed with th- the fit and finish of everything on it. The manifolds bolted up nicely. It came with with valve covers, uh the cams dropped in, everything had clearance. We had made a different spring for that head uh because the the spring pocket is deeper. So, uh we were able to down the road to run a higher lift cam and not get in the bind with that. So, uh we we kind of had a custom part in there, but everything else Pretty much dropped in the OEM buckets slid in and out real nice. The valve guides all went in real good. Everything looked, looked really nice. I was really impressed with the, the workmanship and everything of, of the, the cylinder head. I think when we start looking at drag racing in general and we're looking at engines at this level very deeply, we start to look at the domestic market pretty heavily because we want to, we see these guys, they're going faster what are they doing? And they've had billet blocks and Pro line and, you know, 481X, these cool engines, what, you know, Alan Johnson, these guys, what have they been doing? And so, you try and get little tidbits out of what you can find online. But really, you see a lot of guys, they don't run water. And a lot of the, the, the five-second 2J guys, they don't run water. They've got a sealed head and they fire it up in the staging lanes, do the burnout, run it and turn the thing off and bring it back to the pits and you know, they'll go a whole race or a couple of races and then tear the engine down and do it all over again. And so we kind of, we going back and forth, do we run water? And really the, the question is, is why not run water? You know, what's, what's the real downside? We're, we're not quite the chassis pro mod type of Supra more or less. And if we want to fire it up and run it a few times, you know, not have to cool it down for three hours, so sort to of speak, it'd be nice to have the water in there and have a radiator and water pump and all that stuff. So, uh, the head was designed with water, and the first time we put it on the dyno, I put it on a main line uh, shortly before an event, and wanted to just work it through the paces. And you know, ran it twenty pounds of boost, thirty pounds of boost, forty pounds of boost, and just looked at things, and everything just lined up really, really well. But I I kept looking at plugs and pulling things out, and uh, really noticing just the surface temperature of the aluminum was quite different than the cast. When I changed plugs, I mean, the valve covers were just hot, hotter than usual. But coolant temps, 170 Celsius, or sorry, (laughs) Fahrenheit. I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And there was a melted puddle on the floor. (laughs) Yeah. uh, 150 Fahrenheit, no problem. Uh, Whatever I commanded the coolant fan to turn on and off at, it kind of held that temperature. So, I thought, well, hell, the thing's running cool on the sensor. Maybe I'm just paranoid. And I ran it, made 1300 or so, and I said, okay, let's give it some shit, and made 1600, 1800, and uh, when I ran it at 1800, I turned it off. Well, actually, no, I I had just checked the plugs, made 1800, and I said, okay, let's before everything gets too hot or whatever, let's let's run it one more time, and then we'll check everything. And I went to fire the car up, and it didn't sound right. Just didn't sound like it wanted to start right, like the compression was down. I thought, shit, the compression's down in this thing. That's weird. You know, maybe we heard a valve. Maybe we did this or that. And so, naturally pulled the plugs out of it. All the plugs look good. Don't really know what's going on there. I thought, well, we've had this, we've had problems like this in the past. Sometimes we run the cars really hard at the racetrack and they don't really want to start up again because the exhaust valves tend to bend. Hmm. Uh, And we sort of kind of worked that problem out. Uh, I wouldn't say we're 100% there, but I thought, well, maybe the valves are slightly bent. So I decided to fire the car back up and it took a little bit of throttle and a little bit of running the starter and working it and we get it to fire up and I just sit there and let it idle. I check temps, EGTs, all six cylinders are burning good. I think, well, maybe the valves are just a little tweaked. I don't know. Let's run it again. Run it again. Thing makes over 2000 wheel and I turn it off. And try to start it back up, and it has trouble starting. So, uh, So this
1: is now a 2JZ rotary. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah,
0: you could put it, you could put it that way.
1: Makes good power, but hard to start. Okay, good.
0: Yeah. So we thought. Well, I said I'm going to take the car home. I've got you know ten days or so before my race. Look at everything. Maybe take the head off. And you know, I figured we put it through the paces. We made two thousand. Nothing split in half. All the bearings. You know looked good, everything, you know, there wasn't shavings of metal everywhere. So, we're we're off to a decent start. And I brought it home, did a compression test, leaked down, the numbers were pretty terrible, pulled the head off, and everything looked okay. But the valves and the seats looked like they had started to tweak a little. And so, in a mad dash, you know, five days before the biggest race of the year, we just decided we'll go to the race we'll fix the cylinder head we didn't have another head at all because we couldn't get the damn things that whole <laughs> year we had troubles getting them and and we'd kind of made this decision to work work the problem work the development of this billet head and kind of like i said knew what we were biting off more than we we could chew but we knew what we were up against and so put new some new valves in it um touched up the seats and put the car back together and everything worked just fine. Then we started to make passes with it. Now, the difference here is the dyno is, is a great tool to learn things and run the car on and kind of put the thing through its paces. It's great because you can run your boost control, you can test nitrous, you can sort of make sure everything works mechanically. When you put the thing on the track, it's, it's still a different a different animal. And in hindsight, looking back on data, there were some points there that, that I sort of missed that, that would have helped us at the, at the track when we started having problems. Because the first time we made a pass, we couldn't make it past the eighth mile without the car severely misfiring. The thing would just go flat. We run M&W, CDIs, and most of the cars I do, you, it seems like most guys run a, a CDI or an IGN-1A combination coil. And I've just, the car's never misfired, no matter how rich I ran it or or anything. My car and Tony's was doing the same thing. And really, we'd pull him back to the pits. And Well, you need to run the car richer. We're talking to the guy who makes the head. You need to run it richer. Let's look at your data. We're all putting our heads together. We're all trying to to, to come together. Uh, Tony Palo walks over my pits and he's talking to me about it. And He says, well, maybe these domestic guys, they're, they're not so crazy after all because you talk to these guys and they run on a target lambda of like 0.42. <laughs> maybe they're just running it so damn rich. It's the only way to keep the billet cool. And I thought, well, hell, maybe you're right. So we run it at 40, 45, and the car still won't go through there. You know, it's misfiring. So really just the aluminum, the billet is stronger, uh, but it just has very different thermal characteristics. And, and we knew that going into it with the block and a billet rod, aluminum rod. You know, they act a lot different on the bearing than a steel rod. And really what, what we found was this valve train situation is tricky because a lot of guys that run billet heads, they, they run them without water, you know, in the, in the V8 domestic world and guys run quarter mile, guys run eighth mile. So it's not really an issue of, are you getting the water temp cool enough around the combustion chamber? Is it more or less, is the billet material getting so hot that it starts to, get other valve train items out of clearance. So really what we found was the head was growing so much that it would just squeeze down on the exhaust guides and actually slow down the exhaust valve. And upon inspection, tearing the head off, I had that head off the car probably four times at World Cup finals alone. Make a pass, tear the head off, make a pass, tear the head off. I mean, it was a terrible experience from that perspective, but you could actually see the bronze guide marrying
1: into the alloy on the, the valve. So is this ultimately a, a clearance issue that is that the resolution to it or is it go a bit deeper than that?
0: Well it's definitely you got to run it different because we have gotten it to the point now where we can make full quarter mile passes.
1: Always helpful. Um,
0: yeah and so probably save some of that of what we've done there I've I, probably given away a little too much information to some people but you know, really trying to figure out what those materials do at certain temperatures and things. Because when I ran the car on the dyno, I was able to go third gear, 9,400 RPM, you know, 200 something mile an hour wheel speed, whatever it was, and make a full pass is what I thought. But really, the exhaust gas temperature, when I look back at the data, was max. The max reading I was getting was about 1200 Fahrenheit on the dyno. And generally speaking, we've ran the cars every which Lambda target on a 2J. And generally speaking, they're 1,300 to 1,350 at the stripe. It's kind of no matter how rich we run it, what timing, whatever, that's kind of where the thing just runs. And you talk to some of these other tuners in the domestic world, and they're saying, you can't go over 1,200 degrees. You're going to melt the piston. And shit, we've ran them 1,400 plus and never melted anything. So it's... I've heard I'm exactly just saying, I'm same. just speaking for my, yeah, my car, my data, my sensors, you know, don't take this for what it's worth, but on the dyno, it, it only went 1200. I was able to make a full pull and then right at 1200 degrees in the pass is where the thing would start to have a problem at world cup finals. So we pretty much knew we had a problem and by it slowing the valve down, the piston was starting to contact the valve.
1: Ah, never good.
0: And we've got a great valve partner with Greg at GSC. He makes all these guys that run two Js. He makes all their camshafts, and and we run his valves and his spring combination. And he's a great partner to work with. And you know, he was at the track with us, and and we took those valves out of the head. And he said, "You know what? That that's awesome for me. Like <laughs> this thing was running 9,000 rpm or whatever it was, and the piston hit the thing. God knows how many times." And the valve is like barely even tweaked, like it's not broke off or anything. And there's, there's a little mark on the piston. So who knows how hard it was hitting it. But, you know, he said, quit running that thing. And I said, yeah, I don't, I don't want to break the block or blow a hole in the cylinder head or anything. So we, we kind of abandoned the race at that point and, you know, are kind of out there in undiscovered territory, no man's land with this combination and and still working through the problems. So
1: this is still ongoing,
0: still an ongoing thing. Um, Tony's car has, has shown some pretty good promise. He's able to take a new personal best mile an hour in his car. He's gone two hundred and fifteen wow. in that combination. E. T. was six ninety or so on that pass. But really, I think it's kind of the old adage of to go forward you gotta take some steps back. That this is just Uh, you know, I'm definitely living that. And through the frustration, you know, I sort of know I I could put a stock head back on the car. I know what it would do. I know its limitations in my combination and and what would happen. And I may still do that, but we still want to develop the the billet head stuff because ultimately, it's, it's going to be the right choice down the road and the right combination. And, you know, we're sort of frontiering that for all the 2J guys and
1: Oh, I'm sure they'll thank you in the
0: end. That's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I bet they'll thank me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> let's let's just come back to a few of the topics that that you've talked about as we've gone through that, and and I can only imagine it, it has probably been immensely frustrating going from a package that you had pretty well dialed, d- despite the the obvious limitations with that factory head. Uh, and again, just for for those who maybe aren't real familiar, we haven't discussed the fuel you're running on here. You've you've kind of thrown around some EGT numbers and uh, some lambda numbers, which may make absolutely no sense until people understand you're running on on methanol fuel. Correct.
0: Correct. Yeah, we generally just run the M1 fuel to be specific. So.
1: So a couple of things about methanol fuel, which is pretty much the fuel of choice at the, the top levels of drag racing, whereas legal is is that it has uh, the ability to to basically, well it's got great cooling properties, latent heat of evaporation, it absorbs a, a lot of heat out of the, the inlet charge air and the combustion chamber and everything else as it goes through that phase change from liquid to vapour. So. That's one aspect which is one of the reasons why we can get away with, uh, in some instances, no cooling system at all. The other element with this is that due to the stoichiometric fuel ratio of methanol being 6.4 to 1 versus 14.7 for pump gas, we're running a, a hell of a lot more fuel into the combustion chamber to match with the air so the air fuel ratios, the lambda targets that you're talking about are incredibly rich compared to, you'd never run gasoline at that sort of target, you'd, you'd just be rich misfiring so I just wanted to get those out of the way. On the cooling front, uh, you, you mentioned your decision to run coolant through the cylinder head, I did the same with my own Evo 4G63 although we had a solid filled block and I, I did that weighing up the pros and cons and decided I, I wanted the flexibility to be able to idle the car if someone wanted to hang me out to dry on the tree, you know, I didn't have to worry about overheating the engine while I waited for for the competitor in the other lane to come into stage, that sort of thing. I just thought it True. gave me a lot more flexibility, particularly when it comes to the tuning as well. You know, I, I didn't really feel like doing a pull on the dyno and, and then waiting for an hour and a half for it to cool down enough to, to do another one. You haven't mentioned whether you are also running coolant through through the block or is it just the head? It's just the head on,
0: on my okay. combination.
1: Cool. Yeah. All right. I wanted to clear that up. The, the second element you've talked a couple of times now alluded to your use of nitrous and I it's pretty common with uh, an automatic transmission which we haven't talked about, but you've got a three speed auto in the car, you, you, it can be very difficult to get these these turbos up and spooled on, on, the, on the trans brake and it's pretty common to use a, a shot of nitrous just to, to get that turbo to, to spool initially. After it sort of comes up in the boost it becomes sort of self fulfilling and you don't necessarily need the nitrous. I got the impression from what you're talking about though you're actually spraying down the track, is that correct?
0: Yeah. So as we talked about the two JZ, uh, it's a great bottom end cylinder head sucks. Uh, the other thing that sucks about it is the displacement. It's just a small engine, uh, from the likes of you compare it with like the VR 38. Not only is it a, a further developed engine, just the displacement of, of that being able to run two turbos through basically a, a six cylinder engine. What some of these guys do, the, the benefit of the Nitrous is you have to use it with the automatic to, Because generally, your torque converter is so tight that you have to use the nitrous to bring the torque curve down. And that's why I'm talking about the displacement is basically make that thing into a big block so it can spool that turbo. And then, you know, you can get up on the two-step and run it down the track or whatnot. So, the nitrous just makes the engine more broad in its power and gives it the torque and kind of turns it into those V8 big block. Kind of things that we're racing a lot of the times. So uh, I'm kind of a nitrous fanboy, always have been. You know, Uh, I I put nitrous on everything just because I like to use it the right way. A lot of people break a lot of shit, burn a lot of shit on nitrous. You know, it it helps the car leave better. um, And then ultimately, if you want more power down track and you ran the turbo to the limit, that's kind of your next move is to to use the nitrous as well. And and really. I'm doing that on my own equipment, trying to learn. Like, w- what is it going to do with 80 pounds of boost and 300 worth of nitrous
1: in it? You know. And now I know. Now, just on that note, I've had a a, a little experience with nitrous. Uh, nothing, nothing like you have. I, I kind of started out probably because of the Fast and the Furious. I, I put right. a direct port Grabbing nitrous. The steering kit. wheel. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> uh, I put a direct port nitrous kit on on my Evo drag car and. I, I think I, I used it once or twice and, and the really the the reason behind that was I, I just always could make more power on the turbo alone than, than I could really put to the track so it sort of became redundant. Exactly. Uh, you're obviously not in that scenario but what what I want to talk about, a lot of people sort of, and I think it comes from that fast and the furious, like, well you know, I, I've got a 300 horsepower kit of nitrous on, on demand here so I'll push the button and I'm obviously going to get 300 horsepower. My take on it is it's not quite as straightforward and cut and dried as that when you're dealing with a turbocharged engine and there's two elements to the turbocharger. You've got that compressor wheel which can flow a certain mass of air into the engine and when we get beyond what the turbo compressor can supply, well, the only a good a good way of getting additional oxygen into the cylinder and hence making more power is, of course, nitrous. We're chemically supercharging. We're just adding that oxygen straight into the combustion chamber. So on that front, happy days. That's all good. The the part that I think a lot of people miss, though, is when you're combusting more fuel and air. Uh, By definition that's creating more exhaust gas as well which we still have to evacuate out. So what I see where I'm going with this is what I've seen with admittedly much smaller turbo combinations than yours is you'll have the turbocharger essentially maxed, you can increase the boost, it makes no more power. And then you add a 200 shot of nitrous and you run it on the dyno and instead of 200 horsepower you might get 20 or 50 horsepower. And what you see is the exhaust manifold back pressure just skyrocket the EMAP, map because the turbo is just strangling on on the hot side. Uh, does, does that sort of make sense? Do you agree with with that sort of take on it, or are you just at the size of turbo you are dealing with, you are not choked on the turbine, and that's why you can get away with it?
0: Yeah, the second piece. Uh, certainly, if if you use nitrous and you are already into an E map situation, you are probably just going to have reversion and create a bigger problem. Generally speaking, we're running a turbocharger that is sized way over what our engine should be, uh, you know, as far as the matchup. And so, we, we don't really get in the 2J with my combination, we don't really get into those EMAP numbers. There's some guys that I talk to that are, they're running 60 pounds of boost and 85 pounds of back pressure or EMAP. And,
1: or if you're a diesel guy, they call that drive pressure. And we just never see that. So are you the the magic number always used to be sort of a a, a one to one ratio I mean yeah. if you can keep the emap at or below inlet manifold pressure that that's the sweet spot for a drag application, yes, you give away some uh boost response, which we don't really care about so much in a drag application, but is that sort of am am I reading that right you're you're there or thereabouts?
0: Yes, I had a conversation with with um Marty from TurboSmart a number of years ago, and he was talking to me about Judd Coughlin's ProMod car. And he said, You know, what a lot of people don't realize is the EMAP is obviously choking the engine to where it can't combust correctly, but you need that pressure. You need the gate to close so you can drive the turbo speed. They did something on that car to manage the EMAP by adding another wastegate. I don't know if they had two on there or not per bank, or if they just had one, but they added a an additional one just to manage EMAP. and that kind of stuck with me because I've early on uh, started to use the the CO two boost control that's been in M one from the beginning. Where a lot of people use standalone boost control systems for CO two management, or CO two is the source instead of just using the turbo that's on the car. And one thing that I've that I found pretty cool with that is, is I have wastegate position sensors, and so I. I have two forty-four millimeter gates on my combination. A lot of guys run 60 mil gate, a single gate, and I run two forty fours. And Tony's car runs a single 60. So we've been able to put CO2 on both cars and look at the data side by side. And one of the things that's always been in the back of my mind is what's the EMAP doing versus that wastegate position? Because if I cram all the CO2 to it, the map will go up. Uh, the boost will generally go up. But who knows if the, the ET is going to go up. Generally, you'd say it goes down. But I've always had the tuning approach as to keeping the gates slightly cracked, even if I'm running the shit out of that thing with the nitrous and all that. And you can see that through the position data. And I can close one. It seems like one gate has a little more uh, drive pressure against it. So the same amount of CO2 will, will almost close one and leave one like 10% open. So it's been really cool to look at that data. Um, and I've always looked really closely at turbo speed as well. And what I have found is by using the Nitrous, I don't generally see much more turbo speed. I don't generally see a bunch more EMAP drive. And a lot of that can be just because of the, the sizing combination. A lot of that could also be because the gates are just slightly open.
1: I assume as well though as you bring in that nitrous naturally all other things being equal it should increase your map. but if you're also not targeting an increase in turbo speed and hence boost pressure if you're keeping that relatively consistent I would assume that you are actually seeing those waste gates open further and hence the, the map is sort of managed by bypassing more exhaust gas, is that sort of about right?
0: Yeah, you, it depends on how much you're really targeting for boost and because I've got dozens and dozens and dozens of runs that I go back and I look at all of this data very closely at. Um, I will tell you when I turn the second kit on that turns enough, uh, drive pressure or EMAP to go over one to one at that point. And that's when I think the engine starts to get in a little more trouble or you're on borrowed time as far as, you know, potentially hurting something. I don't see it drive a ton of turbo speed out through the roof. Um, we did break a turbo at, at World Cup Finals in in 19, and we overspun that turbo. That was pretty much our fault. But I was trying to use both nitrous kits because I was racing Jack Kudo, and all that shit was on the line, and we were on the biggest stage in the world, and it was the last race of the year, and you know, I just love that shit. So I didn't give a damn. We were going for it. He was going for it. And we had a hell of a race, but I broke a little bit around the I don't know thousand foot or something. But a lot of people just look at boost or just look at iMap over eMap, and I always look at that data, of course. But really starting to dive more and more into turbo speed and looking at it more consistently, and versus wastegate position because you really don't know that you're using all the turbo until the gate's closed, and then you know is the turbine housing sized correctly to keep the EMAP in check versus how much air the air pump of the engine is pushing through the whole combination. So um, I've kind of broadened that scope, I guess, and looked at that. And I think it's been beneficial at at managing the car um, and trying to be creative with power management and whatnot. Because one of the things that we struggled with on these cars is with the automatic and with the big turbo, and the nitrous and everything, the tracks were getting so good that we could put sixty pounds of boost in it at the sixty foot mark, or seventy pounds of boost, whatever the damn thing would make. We could pretty much try and get there, uh, or it, the the tire would pretty much take it. Is what I'm trying to say. The struggle that we had is we found a point where we, if we asked for. A certain boost curve that the combination couldn't achieve it between the nitrous, the two step, everything. Um, if we wanted 70 pounds of boost by this point, we just, we just couldn't get it there. And so really that's where we needed ET was in that area of the track to get the car to get up off its ass quicker. Like it had more, like it had a shorter gear in it. We couldn't shorten the gear anymore because the thing on the other end is just out of gear. So we're trying to do different things to manage the power and, and only by looking at that those data points over a long period, you know, were we able to come up with some different solutions to try and, and really just increase turbo speed on the starting line was really the idea.
1: Let's just sort of circle back on, on that. So you're basically saying that the limiting factor was the, the boost pressure that you could leave the line with versus what you could feasibly put to the track at the 60 foot mark and beyond you couldn't ramp that boost up to that 70 plus psi quick enough but of course leaving the, the line i'm guessing at 70 psi also wasn't viable because you just blow the tires off it is that sort of what you what you're getting at?
0: yeah the whole combination is is tricky because on an automatic car you you can't really leave it at the same uh rpm like you can a clutch car a clutch car you could leave it i don't know 7000 or 6500 rpm Bring the clutch out, allow it to slip, have the two-step going to where the thing's making 50 pounds of boost or whatever, and you're managing the power with the clutch. You bring it in and you've got all the power when you want it. And the boost curve is basically like this, nice and flat, just 90 degree looking. With the automatic car, the torque converter gets the charge pressure in it and you've got such a small engine, it's hard to run the thing up to you know 6,000 RPM to be able to get the turbo speed to get the boost pressure you want. But then again, you can't leave the line with 40, 50 pounds of boost and just instantly hit the tire with the torque converter. It's just going to knock the tire off. So you know, generally speaking, if you're between that 20 to 25 pounds of boost area to leave on and get the tire to work, and then you want to get after it like you do on a drag radial by just putting a ton of shit to it, you can hit it with the nitrous, but it doesn't really make the turbo just take off like you want with these giant turbos. So you try and use more and more nitrous. And you're asking for a boost curve that you still have, that I haven't been able to achieve because I want that power
1: from, you know,
0: 15 feet out to the 60 foot. I want to increase the
1: ramp rate tremendously. You want it it ramping up at a a sort of a 70 degree angle and you're getting a 40 degree angle. Put
0: the shit to it right now. And, you know, everybody's saying, well, just use the nitrous okay well we've used not only one stage but two stages of nitrous and not had a tremendous gain there because it's a small engine it's a big turbo and it just takes time for the systems to react and the co2's got to push the gates closed and you know because you're you're leaving with the gates open you're only applying so much co2 because you're only trying to leave at like you know 20 pounds of boost versus 45 or whatever so <clears throat> Typically on a clutch car, they'd use a gate on the charge pipe, you know, or a drive by wire throttle. And nobody's really done that with an automatic um, that I know of. But we've sort of started to implement that as well. And really, what what we started to find is turbo speed on the starting line is around fifty six thousand to fifty thousand. I'd say fifty six at the high, fifty at the average, and you know, when the car makes 70, 80 pounds of boost, the turbo speed is more around like 85, 90,000. So the idea is, can we leave at 70,000 shaft speed through a throttle on the charge pipe? still only deliver a manageable boost pressure. Yeah, and then close that damn throttle and have the turbo already lit and not have to rely so heavily on the nitrous to do these things. Now, the challenge in that is, you start to get into turbo surge because when you do that with a clutch car, you've got 7,500 RPM that you're running the air through the engine at. And it's, it's more efficient than you trying to do it at 5,500 on a large turbocharger. And so then the engine starts to surge. And so you really can't get the, you don't have enough airflow and RPM through the engine to really get the shaft speed that you're after period, whether you're using the nitrous or not. So Uh, you, we never just hold it on the line and spray the nitrous. You know, we we use that to get it up, hit the two step, and then the nitrous turns off because we're on the boost pressure. Yeah. Um, but but you know, the challenge is get the shaft speed to get the turbo on earlier, with or without nitrous. And also, the bigger the turbo, the easier you can get the thing to surge on this little motor that we come back around to with the two J. It's a hundred and eighty inch motor. And we've got a lot of weight. We've, we're have limited on gearing. So th- this is like these complex problems that kind of just keep coming around. We've got a lot of weight. It's harder to move the car. And you're trying to work this problem through a lot of different angles, and you start to learn more, try and innovate around this thing. So the benefit for me is I have these ideas in my head, and um, I have John Reed kind of in my corner to be able to write any sort of uh, devel firmware that I dream up or want to do, and and we've been able to develop a lot of cool stuff for power management, and you know, really trying to dial this throttle body thing on a on an automatic car, being able to get that thing to work, not drop boost pressure too hard. Because we open the the valve, but then we don't have a lot of RPM because we can't really rev the the uh, torque converter up because there's so much charge pressure, even with dump valves. And when that charge pressure builds, it pulls down the motor, and so you you've kind of got and then the nitrous turns back on. <laughs> so like, yeah, got this, there's a lot of shit going got, on. There's a lot of shit going on, and you know to go forward, you got to take a couple steps back sometimes. I but,
1: I, I think. A couple of things I'll add there, the next question I was going to ask was around that surge because we see that so often on small capacity engines and drag racing where you're running these massive turbos and particularly with a clutch car you're typically going to be running across a relatively narrow RPM range down the strip even from the launch, you know, maybe it's sort of 7,500 through to ten, eleven thousand 11,000 RPM but as you say with the auto being that the you're starting off at such a low RPM, that's the danger area where if, if you're driving that turbo super hard, you, you're likely to run the compressor into surge. So I mean from what you've just explained, it, it sounds like a, a perfect scenario for one of those small drive-by-wire anti-surge uh, throttle bodies and some uh, custom John Reed firmware. You've mentioned John Reed's name for those who aren't aware and we're talking MoTeC M1 platform here where if you've got the right set of skills, you can essentially write your own code to make the computer do whatever you want um, for those interested in learning more because we won 't dive into that further here we, we have already had John Reed on on the podcast, so we 'll drop a link in the show notes that you can follow if you want to listen to that interview uh, now in in terms of the boost control you 've mentioned here a couple of times c o two boost control, and i 'd like to get a bit of an understanding from you of of why we use CO2 rather than just boost pressure onto the wastegates. Where, where's the, the advantages of doing so? The, <clears throat>
0: the advantages that I see are you've pretty much got control of the wastegates at any given moment with pressure. Um, because you can run a light spring in it, so you can make them open very easily if you want or you can make them close very quickly through applying CO2 pressure to the top or the dome, as a lot of people call it, top of the gate, close the valve. And now all the energy of the engine has to go through the turbine housing. And really, that's that's the key is being able to manage that on the fly. Now, the turbo itself doesn't always provide enough air to do the things that we want it to do. Now you can get tricky and run a solenoid to the top of the gate and the side of the gate or run a four port valve um, and, and I've sort of been down all those roads with those different
1: combinations. Some can work well, some do not. The CO2 control, because you can run such a high regulated pressure, like let's say you, your, your maximum boost pressure is, is 80 psi, but as you've mentioned, you might be leaving the line at, at 20, 30 or whatever. So you've got to a really wide delta from your lowest boost to your highest boost. And most people think, well, you know, that's fine, pneumatic control of the wastegate, we can do that. But there is a limit. You've got your minimum boost pressure which will be set by the the stiffness of the spring in the wastegate beyond which it just pushes open and and that's going to set our lower level. But... I said push open, actually that's the other way around. But uh, with that same spring, a light spring that'll get you down to 20 psi, when the exhaust back pressure rises, that's forcing the wastegate open. So it's actually a limiting ceiling of how much you can run with that same spring, but whereas I'm not sure what pressure you're regulating your CO2. We we, we generally run it at 100 Psi flat. Yeah. Okay. So you've got much more pressure to work on the wastegate than you've ever got from the turbo alone, and specifically, you know, when you're targeting those lower boost pressures as well. So consistent control as well.
0: Yeah, and and what people get caught up on or stuck on when they look at at some of the data, if they're looking at EMap, they're probably saying, okay, I got fifty pounds of boost in in the manifold, in the intake manifold, and I've got fifty pounds of back pressure. I'm one to one. I'm good. I only need a 10 pound spring, you know, to keep that gate shut. But in reality, the thermal expansion of of the engine and the energy of the combustion is something that isn't really captured or calculated. And you'd be surprised at how much CO2 pressure it takes to close a 60 millimeter valve to try and generate a turbo to get up to, you know, 90 something thousand RPM to generate 80 pounds of, of boost in, in the intake manifold. So to give you some data points, for example, my, my car has 244s. Tony's has one a single 60 millimeter gate. To get Tony's car to run 80 pounds in the manifold, we have to use about 140 pounds of CO2 pressure because that valve is so efficient and that surface area is so big that when it barely cracks, it flows a shit ton of air. With my car, it only takes about sixty-five pounds of of wastegate pressure to make that boost, and that's just that's just something that we've learned along the way. And it's really cool because you can just you can do things on the line with it. You can do things early on in the run when the turbo isn't spun up and available, like like you kind of mentioned. And the beauty of it is the PI control in the, in the M1 is so good that you can really target that wastegate pressure. And generally it'll ride with the right uh, control. It'll ride like within about a quarter of a pound.
1: That's actually worth talking about here. With these control strategies, I'm right in saying you're actually, you've got a a pressure sensor on the wastegate. Correct. Top or or dome. So you know what the the CO2 pressure in the dome of the the wastegate, the top of the wastegate is, which is what's forcing that wastegate closed. So your, your closed loop control for boost, you are actually targeting a dome pressure target as as opposed to a specific boost pressure, and then the relationship between your dome pressure and the boost pressure is a given. So it's a roundabout way of getting boost pressure. Am I right in saying that? So that's that's sort of
0: version one of it. Okay, is managing wastegate pressure. And saying, I, I want to target 25 pounds of wastegate pressure. What does that net me in the intake manifold? Not 20. It doesn't give you 25 pounds of boost in the intake
1: manifold. Of course. It just gives you dome pressure, which is going to move the gate up or down to a certain position so there'd be quite a bit of a learning curve around in that version one as you mentioned getting that relationship dialed in between i want 60 psi of inlet manifold pressure what dome pressure at nine and a half thousand rpm do i need in order to achieve right.
0: and that all changes with the displacement the turbo combination the emap the fuel everything so you kind of have to figure that out on your car and then you've got a good idea of how much wastegate pressure to run to, to make a run to say I want to make sixty pounds of boost going down the track. It's going to take you know this number. The version two of that is kind of the the pie in the sky idea of wouldn't it be great if the CO two could be managed by a boost aim of intake manifold pressure because that's ultimately what we're after. And so version two of that does exist. And so now, you know, if I want to run a boost curve and say I want to run, you know, 60 pounds of boost at this point in the track, 70 at this point, 75, whatever, I can just command it in the M1 and it all just magically happens. It's beautiful <laughs> because the system is, is just so dialed
1: now. I'm assuming with that system, it, it it would look something in the background like a lookup table, and instead of uh, a a duty cycle to the wastegate, which we'd conventionally have versus RPM for our. Uh, open loop target or feed forward as it is in the in the Motec, yep. it, it would be more a, a feed forward table where you've got a boost target versus RPM, and that feed forward would then be your wastegate dome pressure. Am I reading that right, or not? Not quite. No, no, it's it's even
0: more than that. It, that there's no duty cycle or feed forward piece to it. It is simply now it is boost aim at RPM or a timer. or a gear and then you're at your net result of boost pressure generally is just right with the aim okay so it's uh, it's been good to to have on the car
1: all this discussion around boost control obviously begs the question with the likes of turbo smart with their what is now no longer really a a new product their e-gate electronic Mm -hmm. wastegate Uh, on face value, that seems to kind of be the silver bullet to all of these boost control issues, simplifying the system, albeit with, admittedly, its its own set of complexities. Any thoughts on that product or you know, adopting that for your own application?
0: I personally have not used them. I think it's it's something that's been in the back of everybody's mind well it'd be sure it'd be cool if we could just have an electronic motor and not have to worry about a spring and all that we just control the gate and open and close it and it'd be great. And that's essentially what we do with the CO2. Um I I think the drawbacks to that system is current draw, but you know there's ways around that that's not a problem. Um so I I I think that product is is a hell of an innovation i think it's really cool i've personally never tried it yet because i have two gates so that would get a little bit interesting and putting two of those you know as far as fit and finish and space to work with and then of course wiring that the other thing too is we air shift the car so i'm gonna need air on board to shift the car and possibly run shoots down the road
1: so it wouldn't allow a complete oversimplification of the, the car. The,
0: yeah, the nerd in me is like, let's
1: put those things on there and s- start trying it. Um, I, I guess the, the the other element there that you always have to weigh up is you've got a, a very well-developed system that you know inside and out, it's proven, it works, it's the old adage of if it isn't broken, don't fix it. I, I, I think, and I don't know off the top of my head the numbers, I know Turbosmart quote them, I think there's a misconception as well with these electronic gates that, that they're instantaneous. They're not. There's still a, a latency in terms of their movement. So you're, you're still not getting that instant. It can't go from fully open to fully closed in you know, a, a microsecond. That's It's a mechanical device. That That's not yep. realistic. Same so thing there's with still Seattle an element too. of that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the current drawer as well. I, again, I'm, I'm really struggling to remember because it's so long ago. I've talked about this. I, I think they, they can draw maximum of about 20 amps which is problematic when you're dealing with the likes of an AMP supercell connector where you can really only pull maybe eight amps maximum through that so that is a problem and I think the aftermarket has kind of scrambled to scrambled to kind of keep up and find solutions around that but as you say th- there definitely are solutions to controlling that wastegate so it's doable. Yeah for sure. All right um, I just want to Talk a little bit about one of the more novel aspects on your car and, and that's the anti wheelie control uh, before we finish up because you know this is a real problem. If you want to hit that car really hard on the line, it's going to probably get the front wheels up in the air. Obviously the, on face value you'd think, well, w- wheelie bars are a, an obvious solution there. But from what I understand, your class rules dictate no wheelie bars. Is that correct?
0: Most of them, yeah. No wheelie bars. And I think wheelie bars would be tricky on an IRS car. Uh, to get those to work and and get them get them there but
1: I think last time we talked to you about this it was fairly early on in your testing of John Reed's uh, IMU based uh, wheelie control and and I'm interested now to sort of get up to speed on it how's that worked out how's it developed did it did it do everything you intended
0: so it's gone through a few different revisions Early on we we tried to use a a more commonly known IMU on the market and we didn't have great results with that. So we commissioned our other friend, Sander, who's been on your show as well. And we'll we'll drop uh, a link to
1: his interview in the show notes as well.
0: (laughs) So Sander's probably the guy that will develop Skynet and we always tease him about that. And you know, he's just a he's just a, a
1: hell of a brain trust there. And He's the he's the world's most likable car nerd. And this is also sounding pretty incestuous with all of the people that have previously <laughs> been on our podcast. But hey, I mean we all know each other, so it goes without right. saying. Right. Yeah, small world. But
0: uh the the cool thing about Sander is is you think you have an idea and man, he's probably like fifty miles further down the road than you've even thought about being. And so you just kinda trust in his uh abilities and we commissioned him to build us a wheelie sensor because he had some ideas with, with his background with the IMU and, and the GPS stuff that he's done. And so the first one he built for us, it, it just worked really well for us. We, it, we, it gave us data, which we were looking for an angle number. Let, let's just um, actually
1: clear that up as well for those who aren't aware of IMU, what you're talking about is an inertial measurement unit. So there's a lot of data that comes out of this, but essentially what you're using it as a product that will basically allow you to uh, detect in real time the the car pitching up into a wheelie and and the angle, and you can actually target a specific wheelie angle, correct? Correct. Yeah. So we, we just wanted something that would give us data first. Um,
0: And a lot of people have used laser ride height sensors in the past and they can be prone to sunlight and distancing and, and, uh, you know, sometimes the output of them is just a zero to five volt signal and they got their own set of problems. So we, we wanted to use something that was a little more advanced. So Sander dreamed us up a, a sensor and we had just started using that when we met you at, at TX2K19 and the firmware was all there and the data was starting to come in and the data looked okay, but not great. Um, we were getting angles, but we weren't getting... Very granular data. We would the difference between two degrees. You think two degrees, the car's just barely got the tire hiked, and the thing's just rolling out. But at four degrees, it wants to flip itself over. <laughs> um, so it so needs uh, to be
1: working in tenth of a de- tenth of a degree.
0: You talked about open open loop boost control. I mean, this is like even further down <laughs> that development path. So getting a sensor that that gave us good data was was tough um sander basically said that sensor's a piece of trash don't tell anybody i ever built it (laughs) Uh, (laughs) throw it in the throw it in the garbage and uh i actually still have it on the car today just because i love sander but he then developed something even further with his uh i believe it's ins system And it's got the attached GPS with it. And I can't rattle off of the specs right now, but we've tried that version of the sensor in my car um, with some Devel firmware from John and and Sander working together and been able to get really good data on the wheelie, Uh, really good angle data, acceleration data. So, so that's been beneficial. Uh, The, I guess the the sort of problem, which isn't really a problem, it's, it's, it's a good problem to have is we sort of worked out the wheelie through the chassis of the car in between these two reiterations on the sensor. So the car really doesn't wheelie much at all anymore. So I don't rely on the, the anti-wheelie strategy as much. It's there to basically stop the car from flipping over right now in its current state. Down the road... We we get the car lighter. We may try some different things, but Sanders used that in a number of other cars and combinations and, and things, and and so it's just we're just kind of a small piece in that puzzle as far as bringing up data and things on that now. So,
1: sure. I mean, if you have the system and don't need to rely on it, that that's probably the the best case scenario anyway. At least you've got the confidence that if something does change and you end up with the front wheels way in the air. Then uh, you're at least not going to flip or or do some serious damage to the car. So I think that that's probably worthwhile. Right. All well, right, Cody. I think we'll move towards wrapping this thing up. Uh, really great deep dive into your car, uh, which we appreciate. We've got the same three questions we ask all of our guests, and and the first of those is uh, what's next in the future for you? Uh, may may be related to the drag racing at least. You know, where where do you see this going Where where's the the finish line for you in terms of 18 mile an hour or is it uh, just a never-ending quest I don't know like I said I've had
0: this car for 20 years now and it's gone through a million revisions and the the goals move around and change and it's probably getting close to the limit of where it can run in its current state you know like I said it's It's not a car that I probably want to take to that real extreme uh, race car level as far as cutting it up, back it, straight axle, Lexan, carbon fiber everywhere, at least with this chassis. So, it's a pretty nice chassis. It's been rotisserie painted and, you know, everything's powder coated and it looks pretty good most of the time. So, I just... I don't quite know where that's going to go with it. Um, so it's a bit of a conundrum as far as what to do with the car at this point. Obviously, I still love racing. I love to race it in its current trim. So it's it's smaller refinements at this point rather than, you know, moving the scale and say, we're going to change this and do this. And so
1: I, I think uh, those who are maybe not, really deep in the world of drag racing sort of look at a car that's doing 680s and you say you want to go 660 and wow, well, point two of a second you know how hard can that be but this becomes exponentially more difficult and of course exponentially more expensive the faster we want to go so each tenth of a second is is, is not uh no mean feat
0: yeah absolutely it's uh, a monumental step to move in those tenths when you're already going this fast and so it uh, it, change, it takes a lot of changes. And uh, I, I don't quite know what I'll do with it, to be honest with you. I'll probably leave it the way it is for now for a while and go through some of the, try and just step up reliability, work on this billet head situation. And of course, like I said, my car is a bit of a science project. So there's there's always something in the back of my mind that I want to try, whether it be, you know, with the power management or, or some of the other subsystems, boost control and whatnot. So yeah, I like it for that reason. And, and I love just competing and cutting lights against a guy next to me so I've got the car it's here it's ready most of the time so I love to go to the to the events but we'll see what happens
1: okay Uh, next question given what you've experienced in your career everything you've sort of gone through the highs the lows etc is there any advice you could give to a a younger version of yourself maybe those listening who kind of maybe want to follow a, a similar path to maybe fast track their experience get them up to speed
0: um, as far as advice, I just think, just check your ego as much as possible. Like I said, I'm a pretty competitive guy and I can get pretty wound up on things. And and earlier on, you know, you and I had that discussion about sort of coming across like, well, I've got this whipped, I, I can turn, I can tune an engine, I can run boost control, like this is easy. And, you know, peeling back the layers of the onion, when you start to understand like the fundamentals of how a crank sensor works and, you know, how an injector works. And like, you, you really don't know that much. You're just the guy who got a wide band in 2020 versus the guy who got a wide band in 2002, you know, it's just a, uh, it's just easier to learn and work with the end result than it is to learn from the beginning and, and build up. So obviously just being open to learn would be, would just be a huge step and really just diving into the information that's out there now, there's so much on YouTube and, and your channel and there's so many guys like me that have done so much of this stuff and I, I tell you what, I, a quick story. I actually went to Tuna 4G63 the other day so that you'll hold this dear to your heart but um, there was a there was a kid there, he was, I don't know, maybe 20 years old and he wired up uh, some injectors, some staged inject- injectors on an AEM version 2 pretty pretty old box and he said you know i don't really know what i'm doing here this is the first time i've done this (laughs) you know i show up and i've got an appointment i go on site to check the car and he says i know how to do all this stuff mechanically he's like but i i really don't know shit about wiring you know And I said, well, that's fine, dude, because you know I build harnesses for a living and do this stuff all the time. And at that moment, I was like, man, I could teach this kid so much right now. And I I was there with him for about three hours, and they had the map sensor wired wrong, they had the injectors wired wrong. I showed him in the software what it was doing, and he was just mind blown at you know the outermost layer of knowledge that we talked about there, and so. If you're that kid or guy that is interested in this kind of stuff, like you really got to listen to the old heads, which, you know, my younger self thought the old guys drag race and they don't know shit because they're running carburetors and looking at plugs, you know, like we talked about. But those guys know a lot of stuff and they're super smart and they that experience is just worth so much. So, find a guy, you know, offer to work for free for him, offer to just pick his brain because most of these guys, you know, we, we love passing on this information or talking about it for the most part. We're still competitive. We're racing guys. But when you get to the track, there's a lot of guys sharing information. We're all trying to do the same damn thing. And we've all been in the struggle. Like, And the one thing I say about all of this is this shit ain't for quitters. <laughs> and it's no. just not, it's just not. I mean, I have been there frustrated, 3 a.m., fixing a car, you know, trying to rig something up, trying to make it to the next round, and it is just gut-wrenching at times. I hate it. And so, you got to be a killer. You got to be so driven, and you just cannot quit. This shit is not for quitters, and you just got to have that determination. You're going to have your days, but that determination is going to get you a long ways.
1: I think uh, the highs and lows of drag racing in particular are extreme, uh, and you do have to be prepared to take the lows along with the highs because sadly there's normally more of the lows than there are highs, but uh, it only takes one run where everything falls into place and the drag racing gods smile on you and that just that makes up for all of the pain that you've suffered leading up to that point. At least that was my experience.
0: There's a bunch of guys in their mid thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, you'll just find them crying at the end of a drag strip (laughs) because of what they just did. You know, it's just, it's crazy. The highs and lows and yeah, you got to be able to take your licks because you're going to have some days that pay off too. and, And those are really good days too. Definitely. So
1: all right, last question for today, Cody, if people want to find out more about you and follow your journey, where are they best to do so? Uh
0: website is uh, codyphillipsracing.com and then, of course, we're on social for
1: Facebook and Instagram at Cody Phillips Racing. Uh, we'll drop some links in the show notes to all of those resources and I would urge people to go and check out uh, Cody Phillips on Instagram at least uh, because unfortunately we're audio only as a podcast, clearly, and uh, we can't do justice to just how pristine uh, this Supra drag car is. And I mean, t- Cody, we haven't really talked about that element either but it, it is the car is a credit to you. You, know, you can build a car to go fast but... Building a car that goes fast and also looks like a, a an artwork that that's a whole different level and, and I'm pretty confident in saying you pride yourself on not just making the car work like it should, but also look clean and tidy and uh, that that doesn't go unnoticed by others as well. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's definitely a lot of effort in
0: it through the years and it's uh you always try and put your stamp of, of showmanship and craftsmanship on everything like that. So there's been a lot of revisions through the years and always trying to make it just one step better. So,
1: no doubt more to come. All right. Thanks a lot for your time, Cody. We look forward to catching up in person soon in the near future. Cheers. All right. Thanks, man. If you enjoyed this episode of Tuned In with Cody Phillips, we'd love it if you could drop a review on your chosen podcasting platform. These reviews really help us to grow our audience and that in turn helps us to continue to get bigger and better guests. To say thanks, each week we'll be picking a random reviewer and sending them out an HPA t-shirt anywhere in the world. This is also a great place to ask any questions you might have too and I'll do my best to answer them if your review gets picked. So this week, a big shout out to N54 man who's asked a question in relation to our interview with Darren from Bullet Race Engineering. He's asked, what plans does he have for upcoming billet blocks? I'd love a billet N54 block but the N54 boys are so cheap I don't know if it'll ever come to fruition. Well we reached out to Darren and asked him that specific question and he's replied saying, we get questions all the time about making different billet blocks. We have two options, we can do a private label block if the client is willing to pay for all of the costs involved in design and manufacturing of the prototype, plus an initial purchase of 10 blocks. Or if we believe that the block they want will sell a certain number of units over a 5 year period, then we'll take the risk and do the project ourselves. Now ultimately here, reading between the lines, I suspect that it is just a case of demand for a billet version of the N54 block. It's not a platform that I'm personally very familiar with but I suspect right now, Bullet maybe aren't getting the requests in a volume that would make it worth their while producing that block. Anyway thanks heaps for your question there and if you can get in touch with us with your sizing and shipping details, we'll fire off a fresh tea straight out to you. Alright that concludes our interview and before we sign off I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialise in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember you've got that coupon code, you can use podcast75 at the checkout to get 75 off the purchase of your first course, you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. Important to mention that when you purchase a course from us, that course is yours for life as well, it never expires, you can rewatch the course as many times as you like, whenever you like. The purchase of a course will also give you 3 months of access to our gold membership, that gives you access to our private members only forum which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time.